Welcome everyone to another episode of Well Said. My guest today has chosen a unique platform to advocate for free speech on campuses, the Miss America competition. Our guest today is Justine Brooke-Murray. Justine is the reigning Miss Northern Lights in the Miss America organization. She founded her platform, Operation Restoring Free Speech in Higher Education, in a mission to restore civil discourse in the US, defend the First Amendment rights of students on college campuses, and to give a voice back to those who are shut down simply for their views. Welcome, Justine. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, great. I'm so excited that we were able to finally get this on the schedule. <laughs> it's great to be here. Yeah, so so I, I want to talk to you about just beauty pageants in general, actually. So beauty pageants have long been, and I say beauty pageants on purpose, because I know that that's kind of like their rejected terminology these days. Um, they've long been a tradition in the United States, although many now reject the term beauty pageant and prefer to, because they prefer it be thought of as like a more multifaceted um, competition. But I actually don't think that the term beauty pageant is as one dimensional as it sounds or as others like to make it sound. So bear with me here. But I think there are many beautiful aspects about what women can offer in society. And those things in and of themselves are objectively beautiful. However, as we know, the feminist movement is more obsessed with the physical world than the transcendent one. So pageantry has had to find ways to kind of add and remove aspects to keep you know, the feminists happy. I think that's kind of what ended up happening. But yet they, the pageants still have like a bit of a mixed reputation regardless. Some would say that they are like anti-woman or that they force women to aspire to an unattainable level, level of perfection and beauty. But others would say that they actually help to develop confident women who understand the value of philanthropy, physical health, and speaking articulately. I mean, I think when I like think of articulate women, I, I definitely don't think of what I hear today on the radio oftentimes. So I think it's actually really important um, to, to hold that up as a standard and as an example. Um, so they act as a reminder of what women have to offer in the world, and in your case, what they actually stand for. So I think it's important to begin our discussion on the concepts of beauty and femininity. Typically, when we think of pageants, like I said, we think we still do kind of think of physical beauty. But when we think of the idea of beauty and what it means to us as a society, there is a specific idea of a woman and a femininity that pageants attempt to uphold. So start us off, Justine, um, what would you say this idea of femininity and of beauty has remained constant over time in pageantry? And what are some of the major changes that you've seen over time? I would say, just as you mentioned in the introduction, beauty is not just about a, a physical appearance. And that's what has really been upheld throughout pageantry for, for a very long time, since probably it's, it's very inception. I know that my competition, yes, it started out as just a swimsuit competition in Atlantic City to bring money to local businesses. But the, the definition of pageantry has expanded so much since then. And even then, the definition of beauty was not is not just physical it was about the full package being articulate your inner beauty as everybody says today inner beauty <laughs> is just as important more important than outer beauty and unfortunately the term beauty and beauty pageants you know it, it's such a it's become such a buzz phrase that people immediately look at that and they think oh it's it celebrates uh only beauty standards for for your your physicality and you know it doesn't they don't really look into it it's just people are that just view this on a, a surface level but mm. going into what it really means to be a woman 
the definition of femininity, part of that includes grace. You know, women, humans, female, we have something that makes us so special mm -hmm. is that we embody grace. We have this beautiful touch that, um, that males, you know, they, they don't have males have physical strength and women empower women are empowered with, with beauty, with, with grace, outer and inner. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that it's this idea of traditional femininity that is now seen as wrong. We're not allowed mm -hmm. to embrace being a, a natural woman. We're not allowed to embrace wearing heels and dresses and wearing makeup because we're told that's denigrating. We're told that we're automatically oppressed if we like to prance around in heels and we like to partake in, in beauty pageants and, and care about our physical appearance as well as just being graceful. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really the, the same people who are saying that we're oppressed. We, we choose to do that ourselves as women. It's a natural instinct as women to want to do that. It's you know, putting on makeup for me, it's, it's a hobby. And for a lot of other women, women like fashion, we're right. told we're not allowed to do that. Um, and in the name of empowerment, in the name of mm -hmm. empowerment, you have so-called feminists basically telling women that we have to just spay ourselves. They want to erase femininity in the name of empowering females. Right. Which has, would essentially have the opposite effect, but <laughs> by making you feel ashamed of who you are and what you want to be. Exactly. Um, so what are some of the most problematic changes in your opinion, you would say in, in just in pageantry over the years um, have been uh, some, I know there has been changes to um, not only the Miss America organization over the years, but also like Miss USA. And there's all these other ones too out there. So like, what are some of the major changes that were controversial um, would you say they were positive, negative, and what were some of the more problematic ones? I'll start out with the positive ones because I, I think that it's important to highlight the positive where, where the, the problematic changes started coming after the positive changes. Mm, gotcha. And it kind of, yeah. Um, so the positive change in my competition was that it, it became not just a swimsuit competition, but it became... Uh, an interview competition, a talent competition. All candidates are are told they're asked to advocate for a certain social impact campaign that they they are very passionate about, a social cause that they can speak about on stage. They can research um, something that where they can actually contribute back to this country. Um, a lot of people take up causes like helping help autism awareness or helping find research, helping find cures, um, or doing research to find cures for cancer, mental health awareness, and of course, mine is free speech on college right. campuses. <laughs> um, and you know, with that, that positive, the, the negative started coming when we were told, well, okay, we need to completely take out the word pageantry. In my competition, you can't even call it a pageant anymore because the term pageant is deemed uh, oh, really? as denigrating. Yep. Oh, and <laughs> we, we took out the swimsuit competition. Mm. Um, we took out um, this idea of an evening gown competition. Now it's called formal, formal wear because you're mm. not allowed to, if you call it an evening gown, 
feminists say, well, that assumes that women are supposed to wear evening gowns. But the, the point of pageantry is to embrace traditional femininity. Right. Women, traditional femininity is, is wearing gowns, wearing dresses. And if you don't, if you don't like traditional femininity, you, you don't have to compete in the pageant. Um, but something that now this, this might just be a minor change um, to a lot of people. But for me, it, it kind of represents a bigger problem, which is this idea that tradition and embracing traditions are somehow wrong. And we mm. must rid out all traditions in order to be empowering. And that's the song here she comes, Miss America. <laughs> At the end of every competition, the winner walks the runway mm-hmm. while that that lovely song is, is played. And I'm I'm a jazz singer, so I love the jazz standards. So this hit this hits home for me because it's a it's a lovely standard that I remember when I watched the Miss America competition growing up. I would I would hear that song and it was my childhood dream to want to become Miss America. And unfortunately, that song has been taken away in the name oh, really? of, yeah, in, in the name of empowerment because some of the lyrics in the song uh, say, um, your ideal, another buzzword we're told we're not allowed to um, express anymore because ideal means perfect and we're not allowed to strive for perfection or being the best you're not allowed to strive what are you what are you trying to win then like because like your the whole idea of winning the competition is that you're striving for something is that you're striving for an idea or an ideal that uh that the the competition is embodying exactly and it it just goes back to the idea the the old cliche that somehow the word perfect means physically Mm. perfect and it only means being physically perfect Um, But then you have another aspect to this, and this just has to say more about our culture rather than just pageantry. We're we're living, our generation is going through a malaise right now. Mm. Our celebrities, our professors, our teachers, our mentors are telling us that it's okay not to be the best you can be. That somehow striving to do the best job that you can in your profession, in something that you're passionate about, that puts pressure on you and it can harm your mental health. And that you should just be okay with being average and not striving hard because too much pressure isn't good. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it begs the question, well, if our founding fathers believed that, would America be here right now? Would, no, absolutely not. Yeah. would we be able to, if, if the people, if we're, would we be able to have traveled to space, travel to the moon, if we adopted this idea throughout American history, if our culture had adopted this idea that it's okay not to strive to be the best we can be and do the right. best we can. Um, so that's the root. I feel like that's right. the root of the problem. Yeah, and that, that brings me back to, to the speech issue too, because a lot of the stuff we see on campus, it's not that... Yes, we do see a lot of policies where there is active censorship. There is there are speech codes. There are policies that specifically list speech as being either deemed as harassment or something that you could report one another on. But at the same time, there's also this like strange sense of complacency amongst students where they'd actually just rather 
they prefer, they think it's actually the right thing to do to just keep their mouths shut and keep their heads down and get through the for these four years of their life. And then they'll you know, somehow magically develop a bunch of ideas and opinions and be outspoken after those four years without any practice or any, you know, any opportunity to debate anything that they're actually learning. Um, so I, I think that's really fascinating that we do have a generation right now. And this is a little, this is kind of a little bit in the millennial generation too, where they just would rather actually be moderates and not choose a side, not strive very hard for much at all. Um, but it's mostly in a, as a reaction to, to prevent others from, to, to avoid confrontation, but also because there's probably some sort of like latent guilt that they feel or something for existing um, or, or um, that like, God forbid that they speak up uh, against a specific issue because, you know, they may not have the right to speak on that issue because they aren't, you know, handicapped immigrants who, you know, had, had, had to swim, you know, three miles or, you know, just something, some like obscure, like standard that in order to have an opinion on an idea. Um, so I guess like back onto your platform then. So do you feel that first, before we start talking about college campuses, I am curious um, if you feel that in the pageantry world, is there this similar way of looking at things? Is there a similar sense of complacency and self-censorship? I would say so. I would say it's a cultural issue that has affected almost every institution in America right now, including pageantry. I remember competing with girls who we would have really robust political discussions backstage because they knew that I was very political. And they would think one way backstage and then all of a sudden they're asked a question on stage and their answers are completely different. And then they'll go backstage and tell me, oh, Justine, I wish I could have said this. I wish I could have said that. I remember one candidate, her social impact initiative campaign was healthy eating. And I, I'm sure she probably changed her, uh, changed her impact because of course, that's politically inc incorrect to promote now healthy eating, but she, she had statistics for male obesity versus female obesity. Hmm. And she said that she was afraid to go on stage and say that there was a difference between male obesity, the male obesity rates and the female obesity rates, because she's afraid judges might uh, look down on her for not acknowledging that there's more than two genders. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. fascinating. So she wasn't even just scared of speaking about healthy eating, which is already absurd on its own, but she was also afraid to talk about the actual scientific differences between men and women obese, male and female obesity, but it wasn't just there's like how they process food. I mean, this is valuable information. People need to understand their bodies and how it reacts to food in order to properly eat and diet and be healthy. Um, that's like saying, I mean, I mean, so I, I come from, I, I do have a, a small medical background. I was a dental hygienist for a short stint. Um, but uh, I, I remember in school always learning about like actually male, males and females are, men and women are susceptible to different diseases and to different disorders. And so it's like, how today would you even talk about that? That's, that's kind of crazy that she was even worried about it. Exactly. Censorship contributes to misinformation. And mm -hmm. it's interesting how the radical left who supports censorship tries to censor speech in the name of preventing misinformation. But when you're not allowed to get information out, 
when you're censoring it, then then you're not allowing you're you're not allowing yourselves or or anyone for that instance to actually try to find the truth because you only have one source that's allowed, one opinion that's allowed, and it's not allowed to be challenged. So you can't find the truth because everything is so tightly censored. Right. No, that's absolutely true. So I do want to ask you, so how did you come to this? Like, did, what were your experiences on college, like in, on the college campus? Did you have, were there certain incidents or was it just kind of like something you noticed? Like what brought you to this platform when you, you know, when you ran for Miss America, what was your, what, what was your thought process behind? I'm going to make free speech on college campuses, my platform. Like how did that all happen? I dealt with campus censorship probably starting three weeks into my freshman year in college, I was actually banned from part of my freshman dormitory for dressing up as our former first lady, Melania Trump for Halloween. And I didn't even know I was banned from this vicinity until people told me, hey, that that entrance, that where you are right now, um, this is called the multicultural living and learning community. And because you're here picking up your friend for Halloween, and you're you're dressed as Melania Trump. You're oppressing us. Um, I was wearing a Make America Great Again hat, so of course the residence director of this floor, mm-hmm. he he actually cornered me. He and other people cornered me near an elevator where I I was just kind of pushed off, and I I left. I didn't really think much of it, and then I later found out. Yep, I was actually banned. I thought it was a joke. I I I couldn't believe it. Um, so that was wow. my first. Yep, my first experience with censorship on campus. I was already outspoken as someone who supported free speech from quite a young age since high school. This is an issue I really cared about, but I really didn't get hit with the censorship firsthand until senior year high school going into college. So when I started competing more in, in pageantry and my competition announced that it would require women to have a, a social impact cause they care about, I, I just thought it was natural hmm. to promote free speech because the entire point about the, the social impact initiative, adding that was to empower the voices of all women in the competition, to empower viewpoint diversity amongst women. Mm-hmm. And I, I figured, well, if we're empowering women's voices, this this impact initiative, this will help empower all women's voices because it's about free speech. Yeah. It's about it's about letting everyone speak. So I thought it was just the perfect fit. But then things got worse for me on my college campus. So I actually couldn't return to campus my senior year, partially because I received death threats and I was oh doxxed because I came out as a conservative. And by this time I was reporting for an outlet called Campus Reform, where Um, I would report on, I would write stories and create videos exposing first amendment violations, not only on my campus, but on other campuses. And another issue at this time was the fact that I was a Jewish Zionist who believed in Israel's right to exist, my ancestral homeland, and I had a professor this whole time who was a free speech advocate and also Jewish and pro-Israel. And students started a social media campaign during the summer of the, the George Floyd protests to try to get her fired for being pro-Israel. 
she wasn't even teaching on campus at the time. She was already on leave and students still tried what? to get fired. So I stood up for her and the same people who promoted peace and tolerance sent anti-Semitic death threats to me and they sent anti-Semitic hate mail to her. Um, but before then, I, I had a club I tried to start on campus called the Young Americans for Freedom chapter. Mm -hmm. It was a chapter of Young Americans for Freedom. And eventually I, I was allowed to have it on campus after I exposed, I wrote about the university shutting us down because we believed that the US Constitution is the greatest form of governance. And that was part of our mission statement. Mm -hmm. And the university said that was exclusionary to international students. When I wrote about this, I was invited to stand next to former President Trump as he signed the campus free speech executive order. And right. people, yeah, people saw that on TV. Professors of mine didn't like that I was there. So things got pretty rough for me when I came back to campus because professors started tagging me in their social media posts. Professors did. Professors. Wow. It That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> It escalated to a point where I was covering protests on campus. Um, Left-wing students wanted to racially segregate the campus in the name of anti-racism, of course. And they knew who I was, that I was a conservative, aspiring journalist, and they didn't like that. So when I was standing in the back of these protests um, with my camera, along with local news outlets, students suddenly erupted in, in shouts and screams. And I, I was mocked a couple of times. Students would block the exits to doors so that I couldn't leave the building. Um, one professor whom I didn't even know, she just approached me in the dark outside on campus at night. And she placed her hand on my shoulder like a secret police. And she says that she knew who I was and that professors wouldn't want me to be taking their classes anymore if I kept doing what I was doing. She threatened me. <laughs> this this is some this is some pretty bad stuff. I mean, what's what's fascinating is that, you know, all the every time like we file a case at speech first or or go on the news and talk about these things, a lot of like the comments and the responses are always talking about, well, you know, sorry that conservative students aren't like brave enough or courageous enough to just speak up or like they can, you know, don't stop trying to defend them and, you know, for, for wanting to say whatever they want when whatever it is that they're saying they shouldn't say these things. So whenever I hear those arguments, I always think back to this, these moments where I hear students say like, no, there, it's not just a matter of not being, not feeling comfortable speaking up. That's one thing. Yeah. Like actual fear of punishment, fear of not only reputational harm, but like your actual prevention of getting a job afterwards, not getting letters of recommendation, getting processed through like Title IX offices because people accuse you of harassment or of other things when you disagree with them or offend them in some way or another. But like now in your case, death threats and physical assaults, like an actual threats. Like this is, I mean, this is some, what we're facing right now on campus. I think it's really important people recognize that and hear that. Um, because oftentimes they'll just say, oh, well, conservatives are just upset that they can't speak up as much or that they're in the minority on campuses. But no, it's, it's much more serious than that. There's actual, there's, there's, real, there's real consequences. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. If I wanted to go to a campus that was just an eco chamber of what I believed, I would have gone. And actually in high school, I had teachers, very nice teachers, warn me secretly, you know, I 
you, you might just want to go to a campus where it, it, it will be easier for you. Um, but I, I, I knew Syracuse University, my college was mostly liberal and I, mm -hmm. I wanted to be on a campus. Everyone should aspire to be on a campus where they're, they're challenged. The point of higher education is to be challenged with a diverse array of perspectives mm -hmm. that some of those perspectives will make you feel uncomfortable. And that's a good thing. You should feel uncomfortable because that's how you grow. That's how your mind grows. But there's a difference between that and then when professors are threatening you, threatening to lower your grades, you're, threat, you're being threatened that you'll get kicked out of school. And now mm -hmm. you, you'll, you are being threatened with physical assault if you, if you dare to speak your mind because it's now making them feel uncomfortable. Um, we're taught now that a differing viewpoint is an existential threat to your identity. Mm -hmm. higher in higher education, our students, people, people in my classes were being taught that you shouldn't feel uncomfortable. You should only have your views regurgitated back to you. That is, of course, if you believe one side, if you're more traditional or conservative, then you're told that you're an evil bigot and you're in college to be re-educated. Right. No, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I was just trying to look it up here, but I can't find it. But I think it was like 20 something percent of students. Um, it was a fire had just released a report last year. It said like 20 percent of students or I think it's 20 or 24 said that. Um, so they, that they think it's okay to use violence if they disagree with someone or with a speaker or, or they're offended by someone um, by, by, like by speech itself. So using violence in response to speech that bothers you um, in some way. And so that's, that's how bad it's getting. And I think it's really important people recognize that. And yet that same report also said 80, over 80% of students say that they self-censor on campus at one point or another. So um, I, I mean, it, it's clearly getting worse. Um, campuses notoriously pass policies, obviously, that, um, that put restrictions on speech on campus, which makes the students think, one, that they, you know, it makes them forget about their rights or think that they don't have any rights while they're on campus, which isn't true. And I always feel like I'm like, know your rights, read the policies because you, you have legal recourse. Um, but, you know, the second thing that it does is it encourages the, the, um, the tyrannical students who think that they can like shut down other students they disagree with when they see policies like this on their campus, it justifies their intent. It justifies everything that they want to do to their to those that they disagree with, which is shut them down and censor them. Um, and again, these are all people who are going to be leaving the campus at some point with college degrees in hand, and they're all going to be entering, um, you know, the corporations, the the tech world. Um, they're going to be entering STEM fields and 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 politics and. They're all gonna, they're they're gonna take these habits and this way of thinking with them. So, like, what are we setting ourselves up for? Is the question. Um, so, I want to get back to pageantry. Um, so, no, actually, so I do want to kind of like ask you a little bit. You you kind of touched on this, but when you announced your platform um, it, uh, for as as uh, in the New Jersey uh, competition um, for Miss America, what kind of reaction did you get from like the general public? Um, or the organization itself, or just the pageantry world and your peers? Did people think that it was kind of like brave that you were standing up for these, like that you were actually taking like a political platform or not even, it's honestly not even a political topic, but you know, it should be like 
everyone should support free speech, but whatever, you know, but because you were taking something a little bit more controversial, you know, how did everyone react to that? Were they like, whoa, look at, look at Justine go, you know, or, or was it like they were embarrassed <laughs> or something? What was it? <laughs> I would say that a lot of well-meaning people warned me and said, you know, that you're never going to win on, on this platform. <laughs> and this is a really bad idea, don't do it. And this mm. was coming from people who both agreed with me about the importance of free speech and also people who of course were for censorship. So of course they would say that, you know, I shouldn't take up this platform. Um, my own family members, my, my parents, and my parents are my, my biggest supporters. Even they were a bit concerned and said, mm. no, it's, it's going to raise the stakes even higher you're going to have a lot of hurdles thrown at you. And it, it, it is true because when I've competed in the past, I brought up my platform to judges or even before, the very first question that I'll receive in, in some of these interviews before we even talk about politics or my social impact is it's a lot of times it's hostile because they see my platform, they already don't like it, they assume oh, this is some one-sided right wing or, you know, I'm the right wing kook. Um, so they'll ask me questions. Well, do you believe January 6th was right? Um, do you, they'll, they'll immediately, yeah. yeah, they'll immediately just hostile. And wow. the yeah, the purpose of these interviews, the interviews for, you know, who's going to be the next Miss America is to get to know the girl, get to know the personality of the candidate. It's it's a job interview, but it's also an interview to have the candidate be able to show her personality, things that are not just specifically about you know her political beliefs. But of course, when I'm in the room, sometimes that's all the judges want to know. And of course, wow. if I espouse the wrong belief it's a little difficult to uh, proceed. Um, so it's, it, it is really sad because free speech, as you mentioned, this is not supposed to be a political issue. It, our first amendment, it was written as the, the first in the bill of rights for a reason. It's back in the fifties and sixties, the left was being censored. This was mm -hmm. deemed a left-wing cause. And Abby Hoffman right now, he would be turning in his grave if, 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 he, the, if he knew what was happening right now where it's deemed a right-wing issue. Mm -hmm. Free speech, wanting free speech is like wanting air. Everybody right. should want free speech. Exactly. You never know. Once one viewpoint is censored, that, that makes everybody else susceptible to having their viewpoints getting censored. And you know, that's what I tried to relay to the judges. That's the entire point of my social impact initiative. But some people just want to jump to conclusions. They want to assume the worst and they, they won't put their listening ears on. Right. Do, you, do they usually, when you explain all of this to them and, and kind of go a little bit back into the founding and make it seem not such like it's a partisan issue, um, do you feel like that resonates with them? Is, are they receiving the message that you're, you're putting out or are they, they just kind of like nodding along and they're just waiting to get you out of the room? It depends. I've had wonderful judges before who they've, they have listened to me. 
And a lot of times people start to listen when you share your personal experiences, because mm. I could, I could throw facts and statistics all I want. I could talk about just the general issue of censorship. But when I share my story, a lot of these judges, their parents themselves, maybe they have kids who are in college. And when they hear from someone who has firsthand experience receiving death threats on their campus, I hope, I would like to hope that opens up some of the audience member, the minds of the audience members and of the judges um, to understand this could affect them. Um, a lot of these judges are professors and teachers. And you know very well that so many professors are, are getting shut down and fired right. for their views. So it could be one of them. And that's what I try to relate to people. This could be you. You could be getting censored. It doesn't matter that you think that you're safe because you hold one popular viewpoint right now that maybe it's not getting censored as much as the other viewpoint, but right. it will be you one day. It will be all of us one day. Yeah, and I always, I always throw that, throw that statistic back out at everyone. Where it's eighty percent of students are saying they self censor. I think we are all aware of the fact that there, eighty percent of the student population is certainly not conservative. So, um, if eighty percent of students are self censoring, then that means every, you know, both sides. It is a, it is a nonpartisan issue, self censorship, and you know you know, the, the assault on free speech on campus is absolutely an issue everyone should care about, just like you said. Um, okay, so I want to get more into, because you also do media, and you said you did campus reform um, when, you, when you were on campus, and then now you're at, uh, is it One American News as well, or great, yeah, so I want to hear about your thoughts actually on kind of, or your impression on how press contributes to free speech, or the free speech movement, and also kind of based on what you know and what you've seen, like what's your impression of how it also has the potential to harm the speech movement? I would say that, and of course this is another buzz phrase, but there's a lot of fake news that our mainstream media outlets push. And the most dangerous fake news they push is, is falsehoods targeting individuals or certain situations. When we talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse situation, when you have a bunch of talk show hosts or the Nick Sandman situation, you had a bunch of talk show hosts and media outlets reporting falsehoods, defaming young people. Hmm. Then suddenly the, the, those people's lives are, are ruined forever. Um, but not only that, um, when they you have media outlets reporting one narrative on COVID, or maybe they're shutting down younger journalists or other journalists in the corporation who are, they're reporting something else and they're told, nope, you have to be quiet about that. You can mm -hmm. only promote stories. You can only do research that promotes this idea that everybody, you know, the government should force everyone to be vaccinated. Um, when only those, only that information gets out, only those opinions get out. and especially when they're they're deemed as factual when msnbc and cnn on their daytime shows that are supposed to be completely non-biased are putting out opinions you have big tech companies like twitter and facebook using them as references to censor speech online so oh, yeah. when you tweet out something criticizing mask mandates or questioning the, the Black Lives Matter movement. 
and Twitter will send you a notification saying we're taking this tweet down or we're suspending you because you promoted misinformation sometimes they'll have a source and that source is from some of these biased outlets which are basically opinions um that's how it it really can affect censorship um i remember when i was I, i used to work for my campus tv station back at syracuse i was suspended for about two or three times um i was taking into rooms um, by my my directors telling me that um, oh I remember at one point I I reported that Israel was the only true democracy in the Middle East and I was told I was not allowed to say that on air um, I was told that because I was part of the College Republicans chapter and because I also worked for a conservative outlet outside of the campus TV station um, that um, I am unreliable and shouldn't be allowed to be a, a student reporter. And this, once again, it's a, it's a student club, but they, right. they train young journalists who now work for these major corporations who now have top producer positions at yeah. MSNBC, Fox News. Um, so they're, they're training these people. We're the top journalism school in the country. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what's pretty frightening. I remember I was pulled out of class by one of my journalism professors who she asked me a question in front of everybody. Do I think the media was skewed when they were reporting on one of the the recent school shootings? And I I said, yes. And she said, how dare you say that in front of my students? Um, So that's the problem. It goes back to you have education, you have these ivory tower universities, um, journalism schools promoting censorship right to their students and they're already students. at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, what are some, so in your experiences, have you seen any, well, I guess, have you like, what has some of your like positive experiences been with, with media? Do you see this like with this bias issue in media? Um, do you see that ever going away just based on your experiences kind of at the ground level, working your way up? Um, or do you see that it's just getting worse and it, it it's not it's not going to come back together <laughs> that's a good question because i think i think the sad part the the sad truth is is that all media outlets will always have a bias because we're, we're all human and you know we we all believe one sort of thing no matter how hard you try um to, to report the truth. But I think now more than ever, before, you know, back before social media, you could rely on the news more. You could rely mm-hmm. on media outlets to report the, the straight truth. Um, I think that there's a lot of hope for local outlets because local outlets are, are known for being, uh, trying to be a little bit more moderate and a little bit nonpartisan. But I think that Fortunately, true journalism, it, it might just, yeah. um, we could try to revive it. And I'm working for an outlet that's trying to revive it right now. When I was with Campus Reform, we tried to revive it. I think there are a lot of outlets, a lot of outlets that aren't mainstream, um, especially podcasts and new forms of right. media and reporting yeah. that are tackling this issue. So that's where I find the hope for it in some of those non-mainstream outlets. I think that's absolutely right. And I think 
you also touched on the other issue, which is if we could just teach the principles of journalism in, in, in school rather than kind of what exactly it is they should be reporting on, then I think that will fundamentally kind of start shifting the dynamic a little bit more to an unbiased news or unbiased media in general, just because of the fact that students are going to come out a little bit more principled, a little bit more open-minded to the idea of weighing um, different ideas and different opinions. Yeah, so I just want to... Um, I want to wrap up here and uh, I have I have a couple questions. One, because um, I, I, I typically don't ask this of women because like I have my own opinions on it. But I, the other day I was on a podcast, actually it was a Daily Signal podcast at Heritage and they have another one called Problematic Women. I don't know if you've ever listened to it, but it's funny because they like to always ask their female guests whether or not they consider themselves feminist um, because they're touching on this idea of like, okay, can we, can conservative women reclaim the term feminism, like empowering women, you know, that concept, can we reclaim that? Or is that something that's just like fundamentally not going to be conservative ever again? And, you know, it's, you are, um, as a, you're, you don't consider yourself feminist because you're identifying feminism as like today's movement. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And if you consider yourself one or not, um, but then also if you can give any advice to young conservative women who um, uh, want to embrace their femininity, also like be confident in themselves, but then you know have a platform, have something that they want to advocate for as well. I would say that if, if you ask me if I was a feminist and back in the 70s, if this were the 70s or the <laughs> 80s, I would have probably said, yes, I am a feminist. But right now, the, the term feminist, as you've kind of described, has been so tortured and hijacked by mm. this modern third wave movement that really stands against women. Because now this idea of feminism includes the, this falsehood that uh, you, you, know, you can be a woman if you aren't biologically a woman, um, or that in order to be an empowered woman, you must rid your traditional femininity and mm -hmm. you shouldn't wear dresses and skirts. Um, you must completely spay yourself and dress and act like a man. It's this idea, it's actually the, the modern definition of feminism is pretty sexist because yeah. they're telling us that we, we must be exactly like men in order to be empowered. So right. I'm not I'm not a modern day feminist, but if we can reclaim feminism, the, the term feminism, how it was back in, in the, the 60s, 70s, and maybe the 80s before it got hijacked, then <laughs> then I, I will be a feminist again. <laughs> <laughs> and what advice do you have for women who want to kind of like follow in your in a similar path as you is like um, again embracing that femininity, but then also simultaneously standing up and advocating for something on a on a unique platform. I would say that it's very hard with the pressures you'll face, especially if you're still in school, to to not just throw on away the heels, you know, hide hide your true identity, but if you do it if you will find other people, if you, if you're proud to be who you are, there are other people who, who will yeah. be inspired by what you're doing. They will be inspired to be themselves. They will, they will be inspired to continue speaking their, their viewpoints, their truth, the truth. I don't believe in <laughs> their truth. That was a, that was a good one. <laughs> their, their opinions. Um, right. I remember 
I lost a lot of friends. I, I actually had no friends on campus. I had like maybe four friends and, and oh, no. one professor. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one professor, right? Yeah. That one professor. But the upside was that I knew who my true friends were. They were those mm. four people. And <laughs> I found a lot of friends outside, especially right. with social media. I found a lot of friends who, who were also being shut down on their college campus. They were being shut down for embracing their traditional femininity too. Mm -hmm. And I found those ladies and I joined those groups. We formed groups. There's a lot of women's pro women networks out there, networks out there, mm -hmm. uh, um, enlightened women's network. Yeah. We have, um, a lot of these pro female media outlets. Nikki Haley is, is known for being a mentor to young women like us. Um, so find friends, make friends, make connections, but you can't do that without expressing yourself, without expressing your true identity. You won't be able to weed out the people who will not be your true friends. Um, and you won't be able to find the people who, who are, are just like you or are at least tolerant and will be willing to understand your point of view. Right. No, that's, that's fantastic advice. Fantastic advice, really. Um, well, thank you so much for, for joining, for joining Well Said. This is a podcast where I interview with policy experts, commentators, academics, students, and activists on issues such as higher education, free speech, and related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube, as well as our podcast platform on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can download it and listen to it anytime and give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard today. I'm Sharice Trump, and Justine, that was well said. <laughs>